This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I had the distinct honor to connect again with Dr. David Perlmutter. If you recall, we recorded together on episode 141, Reclaim Your Brain, talking about at that time, his most recent book, Brainwash. Today, he joined me again to dive deep into his newest book, which I think is my favorite of all. It's called Drop Acid, and it really focuses in on the role of uric acid, fructose metabolism, and metabolic health. For those that are not aware, he's a board-certified neurologist and five times New York Times bestselling author. My conversation with him today was just mind-blowing. The whole explanation around how our body processes uric acid, the impact of alcohol and fructose consumption, how the role of metabolic health is worsening given our current dietary choices, how things like high fructose corn syrup actually impair the production of insulin and leptin signaling, which translates into no satiety. Therefore we keep eating the impact of metabolic health on brain function, how one in 10 older than 65 years old now have Alzheimer's, the net impact of obesity on cognitive and behavioral health, and the things we can do. The wonderful thing about Dr. Perlmutter's work is that there are a lot of things we can change about the foods we choose to eat, the supplements we consume, and our diets that have profound net impact on metabolic markers, as well as metabolic health. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'd really like to start the conversation focused on the scope of the metabolic health problem that we're looking at, and then dive into the discussion on uric acid. Because I think, you know, certainly my platform talks a great deal about the impact of chronic disease states and metabolic inflexibility, and it's certainly not getting better right now. And so I would love for listeners to hear from you. What is the scope of the problem that we're dealing with right now? And how does uric acid fit into that? Because, you know, for me, and I always say, you know, we want to evolve, shift and change as clinicians. And for me, you know, working in cardiology for 16 years, prescribing a lot of medications that provoked gouty episodes, that was as much as I thought about uric acid. But now looking through this new lens, I mean, I feel like it's a whole new world and a whole new opportunity to support patients in very different ways. Cynthia, I think that, you know, you hit upon the gold ring here, and that is that any of us involved in healthcare really have to focus on this overriding role that our metabolic disturbances are playing in terms of paving the way for our most dreaded and pervasive conditions. You know, the World Health Organization is telling us that the number one cause of death on our planet is not some virus. It is a group of conditions called chronic degenerative diseases like coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, uh, even some forms of cancer. And these are all underlain by disturbances of our metabolism, meaning uh, insulin resistance, elevated production of body fat, locking up our body fat so that we can't use it, uh, elevated blood pressure. These are metabolic disturbances. So in a very real sense, when we look at these, we say, oh, those are all bad things. Why on earth would you ever consider it otherwise? In reality, for most of our time on this planet, 
it was powerfully helpful to be insulin resistant and to have higher blood pressure and to make more body fat because they would serve as advantages for us when we couldn't find food and we couldn't find water. So it's really in the context of our modern world that we then see that these are paving the way for basically disaster. Again, the number one cause of death on our planet right now. So we have to then do our very best to identify what's causing these problems. And we've known, for example, that the sugar fructose has been associated with metabolic disturbances. The first really solid paper that came out was in The Lancet way back in 1970. I would have been in the 10th grade. And it said, yeah, you know, fructose sugar is challenges our metabolism, but we never fully understood how it happens until very recently when all of the steps relating fructose consumption fell into place. We realized that directly it's threatening our metabolism, but also amplified through the production of something called uric acid, which is the end product of fructose metabolism. It lights up our bodies to prepare for winter, basically. It's a powerful signal, this uric acid, telling us that winter's coming, make fat, store fat, raise the blood sugar, raise the blood pressure. And we don't need that, that's for darn sure, but our bodies want to do that because our bodies want to protect us so that we can survive. So throughout our history, this was powerfully effective in allowing us to survive. The fact that we as humans and other primates have far greater uric acid levels than other mammals, for example, allowing our survival advantage. And you know, this set of mutations took place about 14 to 17 million years ago, when a series of genetic mutations over more than a million years caused us to lose the ability to make an enzyme called uricase, which would otherwise have broken down uric acid. We lost that enzyme, so our uric acid levels are elevated, and that was an advantage. So what I'm saying is that there's this mismatch then between our genome and our influences on our physiology. In other words, an evolutionary environmental mismatch or where nature and nurture butt heads. And I've been interested in this whole concept for quite some time. I published my first paper on this topic 50 years ago, half a century ago when I was 16. And I concluded that paper, which is in the new book, by asking the simple question, what about those of us who are alive today, but we're living with this outdated machinery? In other words, we all have machinery that's geared to keep us alive when we can't find food, when we can't find water. It works pretty darn well. We have thrifty genes that make the most out of whatever we can find. Well, today winter's not coming. It's not you know around the corner that we're not gonna have food. And we're targeting this pathway every single day by telling it to prepare us for food scarcity. And it's doing that. And you know, when you look around here in America, one third, one in three adults isn't just overweight, but actually obese by BMI measurement. And in the distant future, in the year 2030, that's way off in the future, right? That number is going to be 50% of adults eight years from now are going to be obese, not just overweight, half, one in two. You see it happening. You know, if you're at an airport, you look at everybody, you're seeing it happen. You know, that 83 million Americans are pre-diabetic and about 34 million Americans are already diabetic. That is 
devastating when we think of what are the downstream consequences of being diabetic in terms of the brain, for example, in terms of kidney function, in terms of all the things that we know are associated with type 2 diabetes. When we see that 10% of uh, kids between the age of 12 and 18 have been diagnosed with high blood pressure, caramba, that is, uh, it takes your breath away. And it's not that, you know, we're, we've suddenly developed a suite of genetic mutations that uh, are leading to these problems, not at all. It's the signaling that we're giving to our physiology that's playing upon these adaptive genetics that's leading to these maladies that are crippling us. Again, the number one cause of death on our planet. Our longevity began to decline uh, two years ago prior to COVID. You know, people are, are seeing that, you know, now there's about a two-year reduction in longevity rates for adults uh, in America and ascribing that to COVID. It began before COVID. So we reached our peak. We were doing pretty well. But now finally, our bad lifestyle choices have come home to roost and, you know, are threatening our ability to even live a long and healthy life. So that's what's so exciting about uric acid. Is it the end all? No, it is not. But it becomes yet another powerful tool in our toolboxes to influence in a positive way when we gain control over uric acid. That's something, Cynthia, that we'll talk about. But it becomes yet another powerful tool along with exercise and getting a good night's sleep, for example, minimizing our stress, getting out in nature, all of the things that you know, you've been talking about for an awful long time uh, that we can bring to bear to regain our health and then maintain our health. And really, you know, I would say at the end of the day, but at the beginning of the day, that's what it's all about. Well, I'm so grateful that you're bringing this to light. And for anyone that's listening, you did a beautiful job explaining the full scope of what's going on. It's not just adults, it's impacting our young people, our youth, you know, even children, small children are being impacted by metabolic disease. And this is not a sign that we are heading in the right direction. And so knowing that we have other metrics of which we can look at to, you know, talk about, you know, how we can you know, include more lifestyle pieces that will lower our risk of becoming ill. So what exactly is uric acid? You know, I know that, you know, as clinicians, we're familiar with this terminology, but for listeners, if they're trying to understand what exactly is uric acid, where does it come from and how are we getting it into our diets? Because I think that's a really important point. Sure. So for purposes of the quiz, it'll be really simple. <laughs> there are only three things that when they are metabolized, the end product is uric acid. They are alcohol, a group of chemicals called purines, and I'll define that in just a moment. But the big player is fructose. Our fructose consumption increased between 1970 and 1990, 1,000%. So these things all play into forming this uric acid, which then sounds the alarm that winter is coming. We've got to raise the blood pressure, make fat, store fat, and all the things, you know, really doing our best to try to avoid. So that's the simple answer. So I guess on the quiz, it'll be all of the above, A, B, C, or D, all of the above. But I think we can break this down a little bit. And for example, alcohol, not all types of alcohol are necessarily going to be dramatic in terms of raising uric acid. Hard alcohol raises uric acid pretty substantially. Uh, wine in men, moderate amounts of wine consumption are associated with pretty much no effect. And in women, <clears throat> a little bit of wine is actually associated with a bit lower uric acid. And that might be because of 
some of the biopolyphenols that wine contains. The worst player in the alcohol world is beer. <clears throat> beer is an issue because, yes, it contains the alcohol that becomes uric acid, but it also contains this other type of chemical that becomes uric acid as well. It's called purines. Purines are the breakdown product of nucleotides like uh, come from DNA and RNA. When foods have a lot of DNA and RNA because they have a lot of cells, then they form lots of purines and that is metabolized into uric acid. Beer is made from brewer's yeast, which is exquisitely high in these new purines and therefore you get the double whammy. So that's telling our bodies because you're making a lot of uric acid to make a lot of fat. So now we understand where the beer belly is coming from because you're getting, you're making this signal to make fat from two sources, the purines and the alcohol. And it's interesting because Japan has been way ahead of the United States in this understanding of the role of uric acid in metabolic issues to the extent that they now are marketing purine-free beer. You know, you're still going to get the alcohol, but the purines have been removed. So that would tend to make much less uric acid. It's really interesting because, you know, having had the opportunity to treat gout for a long, long time and really thinking thoughtfully about the role of fructose as an example, because, you know, for me, I've been talking about high fructose corn syrup for a long period of time, but what it does physiologically in our bodies and even worse, the high fructose corn syrup option, because I'm sure there are people listening saying, wait a minute, there's fructose and fruit. And how does that differentiate from high fructose corn syrup? And, you know, when I was reading your book, it just reminded me of how significantly different they are. Would you speak to this? I think this is really important. I know I talk a lot about food labels and reading food labels and high fructose corn syrup is a GMO subsidized product. It proliferates in the processed food industry, you know, based on what I've read with your work and with Dr. Johnson's acknowledging how critically important it is to avoid liquid high fructose corn syrup in particular. That's right. And I can't tell you that I've been on a podcast where the question of fruit versus liquid uh, fructose hasn't come up. And it's a great question because, you know, the messaging here is that we've got to limit our fructose. What is fructose? By definition, fruit, sugar. That's where the name comes from. Ose means sugar. So the question about fruit, I think, is a very good one. And it turns out that fruit consumption in moderation is actually associated with lowering uh, or a lowered uric acid level. And, you know, the various explanations for that, you mentioned the liquid fructose, that's just bombarding your body, whether it's a soda or it's fruit juice, apple juice, oranges, whatever, you're getting a massive slug of fructose to the extent that you know, this is overwhelms the liver and all of the downstream issues related to fructose consumption then get lit up because of this massive concentration of fructose that is delivered to the body. Not so when you consume fruit. Number one, it turns out there's not a whole heck of a lot of fructose in uh, fruit. I mean, an apple might have five, maybe 10 grams of fructose and you don't gobble down an apple. I mean, you eat it over time that fructose is released much more slowly because of the fiber that's contained in the apple. But interestingly, there are a couple other things going on here that are really actually very positive as they relate to to, uh, uric acid production. They include the fact that an apple and other fruits will contain vitamin C that helps us excrete uric acid. So we're, we're added a negative to the equation there. 
but also bioflavonoids like quercetin, for example, contained in fruits and vegetables, target an important enzyme that is needed to make uric acid. It's called xanthine oxidase. And targeting xanthine oxidase with quercetin is a very powerful strategy that we talk about in the book for people who need to drop their uric acid. That enzyme, when it's targeted, when it's shut down to some degree, that's how the gout drugs work. That's how allopurinol works. So we're, we're quite familiar with the notion of targeting a xanthine oxidase enzyme to reduce uric acid. We've known about that for a long time in the context of gout. And, you know, to be sure, that's the gout connection to uric acid is what we were all trained in, right? But uh, this is not your grandfather's uric acid anymore. It's such a broad net that is thrown as we begin to unravel what uric acid is doing in the body. Yeah, at very high levels, it can crystallize uh, in the extracellular space and form painful crystals in your toe. That's an issue we've known about for, you know, it's been described for a couple of hundred years, but this is again, not your grandfather's uric acid. There was a great article published in, I think 2012, a collaborative study with uh, Turkish and Japanese researchers and won't get into the, to the paper, but the title says a lot. It was called Uric Acid and Metabolic Syndrome from Innocent Bystander to Central Player. What does that mean? It means that, yeah, we've seen uh, elevation of uric acid in association with hypertension and elevated blood sugar, insulin resistance, and certainly abnormal weight gain. We've seen those correlations for an awful long time, but beginning about a decade ago, and certainly the work was done beginning two decades ago, but beginning about a decade ago, it we really started to see a shift in our understanding that yeah, it's elevated, but it's actually playing a mechanistic role. It's leading to some degree. It's playing a role in causing these problems. Now that we know it and we can help people understand how to lower this uric acid, how to monitor their uric acid, it becomes, as I said earlier, a really empowering tool in your toolbox for reining in your metabolism and, and opening the door to, to being healthier. At some point, we've all been sold a big, fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you, it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com 
com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia 10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia 10 for 10% off any order. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of beam minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. I think that's such an important message to make sure that people feel that there's some, there are things they can do to be proactive. There are things they can do to monitor this. I think the kind of old methodology was worried about uric acid, or at least I did in cardiology, only when someone became symptomatic. A lot of the drugs that I would prescribe, diuretics in particular, especially for my heart failure patients, for which I am sorry, beta blockers and medications like that, that they needed, and then they would provoke, you know, this elevation of uric acid. And then we would then address that problem. In fact, one of my favorite patients from my years ago in Baltimore used to call the gout that he got in his big toe gouch. And so that became this running joke that he knew that he was over diuresed or had gotten too much diuretics when his gout would flare. Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting about fructose in terms of what it does in the brain and how it's so inflammatory is that it actually impacts dopamine signaling in the brain and can lead to compulsive eating and food addiction. And that was an angle I had not considered. I mean, it makes sense now retrospectively, but let's talk a little bit about the impact of fructose on the brain vis-a-vis the consumption of these, these foods that are high in purines. Well, to really unpack this, and if I do it through the lens of history, I think it'll make a lot of sense. And so 
The consumption of fructose in our ancestors, be they the Paleolithic ancestors, even before that, you know, long ago, millions of years ago in our primate ancestors, fructose would happen in the late summer, early fall, when the very few uh, sources of fructose were available and would finally ripen when the starch would turn into fructose. And we would like those foods because they were sweet. So the this development of the so-called sweet tooth, actually it's not the tooth, it's the brain, the desire for sweet and stimulating, the very pathway that you just described, is something that's been present for uh, you know, millions and millions of years. And it's present in all humans today, though some people say, oh, I don't have a sweet tooth. Well, you choose not to eat sweets because you know they're not good for you, but it doesn't mean you don't like sweet. I mean, you know, I, when I have to say no to the dessert, it's not that I don't want to eat, the key lime pie. I would love to eat key lime pie, but it's not good for me. That my brainstem saying yes, but my prefrontal cortex is saying, hold on, the adults in the room make a better decision. You don't want to you know, mess up your blood sugar. You're wearing a CGM. You're going to have to be accountable uh, for that. So, uh, But these are hardwired into us that we have this desire to satisfy ourselves, to have that dopamine sense of appreciation, the craving then for sweet. And then you would then understand how having fructose and consuming fructose would stimulate that pathway along with helping make us uh, gain more body fat, along with raising our blood pressure. And the incredible thing about the whole mechanism is that it's what we call a feed forward process. It amplifies itself through uric acid. When fructose is metabolized, the first enzyme is called fructokinase. And that's really important that fructokinase does its job if fructose is to be metabolized. At the end of the metabolism, we create uric acid that does what? Normally, you would think it would then shut off fructokinase as a feedback mechanism. It stimulates fructokinase to keep it going. So uh, that is a powerful mechanism to prepare us for food scarcity. The desire to eat more food the leptin resistance that we develop from consumption of fructose directly leads to the fact uh, that our brain doesn't tell us we should quit eating. And that's you know clearly related to fructose consumption and uric acid playing a role there as well. So these are you know incredibly detailed survival mechanisms hardwired into our brains that gave us an advantage that would say once we started, and we all know it's true, you start eating fr uh, sweets, it's hard to turn that off. Once it starts happening, you need that second piece of key lime pie. Why do I keep saying that? Because I live in Florida, that was one of my favorite things, key lime pie and ginger ale. But it's, we all know that once we start, it's very difficult. And even to make it a little more complicated, but for me a little bit more exciting, is the idea that our bodies actually make fructose. Who knew? You know, we've talked for years about limiting your fructose consumption, especially the fructose in beverages and the onslaught of fructose, what it does to our physiology. So you could be fructose free and yet within your body and in your brain, getting back to signaling and this whole pathway of wanting to eat more, you can make uh, fructose through what is called the polyol pathway, where we convert blood sugar or glucose into fructose. And there are several triggers for that. One that is extremely important is when the body thinks that it is dehydrated. How does the body know or believe that it's dehydrated? Your sodium level goes up, becomes more concentrated. At that point, a variety of mechanisms go into place. 
We stimulate uh, various enzymes that allow us to retain water because we know through activation or through the elevated sodium uh, that we don't have water. We're becoming dehydrated. Vasopressin helps us conserve water. And there you go. But we also activate the formation of fructose de novo in the body. Who knew? Now, why would that be helpful, for example, if we're dehydrated? Well, because the downstream product of fructose ultimately is uric acid that tells the body to do what? Make fat. Well, why in the world would making fat be a survival mechanism if we can't find water? Well, the example I like to use is the camel. When you see a camel, that, not that it's something we see very often, but imagine then a camel that this animal is able to walk across the desert and not drink water. How does it do that? Well, what's the unique identifying characteristic of the camel? It has a hump. And inside that hump is not water, it's fat. When the camel and when you and I burn fat, we create two things, carbon dioxide and metabolic water. So storage of fat for our ancestors, for the camel, for the hummingbird, for the whale, uh, is a powerful resource from which these animals are able to make metabolic water and not become dehydrated. That signal is high sodium. Now, these days people are not becoming dehydrated, but guess what? We're triggering the mechanism by eating too much salt. So when you're getting ready to watch the big game and you're parking yourself in front of the TV and eating a bag of highly salted pretzels, your sodium level goes up. It isn't a lot. It doesn't need to go up a lot. These mechanisms are very sensitive. And when that sodium level goes up, you trigger this long-standing mechanism in your physiology that's been present for millions of years that says, oh, make fat because we need to make metabolic water because our sodium level is up. But we've tricked it, right? Well, now that you know that and you can't control, you're going to park yourself on the couch and watch the game and eat the pretzels. That's just a given. That's what you want to do, whatever to your right. All you have to do is make sure to drink enough water uh, with that sodium load and you'll dilute it down and you won't create as much fructose and therefore you're not going to make as much fat. So this explains an awful lot because we've known for decades that higher levels of salt consumption are related to obesity, they're related to uh, type 2 diabetes, and my gosh, we've known at least for three to four decades that higher salt consumption is related to hypertension. But now we know why, because you're triggering this ancient mechanism in your body because your body thinks it's dehydrated. And now by simply understanding that, look at the tools that you have uh, that can help you understand how uric acid is playing a role in telling your body to prepare for food scarcity, to prepare for water scarcity, and it just doesn't have to happen. It's absolutely fascinating. And are we differentiating between processed iodized salt or even natural sources of salt? Great question. And, you know, there's a lot of narrative about, well, I'm not having salt, I'm having Himalayan sea salt, that it comes from 2,000-year-old whatever, and it's salt, it's sodium, and it's going to raise your serum sodium level. So 
you know, it, it, I would say that if you're going to eat salt, you know, there's some advantages to something like Himalayan sea salt in terms of other things that it contains, as well as its purity and certainly iodized salt, very common these days, a source of iodine that we all know we need if people are not eating other iodine rich foods, uh, like shellfish, for example. So, you know, we have to look basically at the sodium content of the foods that we are consuming. And that level, you know, continues to rise as do rates of obesity, hypertension, and diabetes. And there's a, a very powerful mechanism for that that I've just described. The initiation of fructose production in the brain when this polyol pathway, converting glucose into fructose, is activated. Downstream effect, uric acid is produced. And one of the biggest things that uric acid does that is so threatening is it compromises mitochondrial function. It increases free radical mediated or oxidative stress intracellularly, and that damages mitochondrial function, which is what we do not need. That was a survival mechanism. Damage the Krebs cycle and the mitochondria aren't gonna use as much uh, fuel to make ATP. So that was a survival mechanism. Nowadays, when we threaten our mitochondria, my gosh, we're doing a bad thing. We're threatening, uh, we're increasing our risk for Alzheimer's, all kinds of mitochondrial related uh, issues. And the other important driver of this production of fructose within our bodies is higher levels of glucose. And you know that is certainly pretty pervasive these days. So when our blood sugar level is elevated, when the environment, when the milieu, for example, in the brain, when there are higher levels of glucose in the brain, that pushes the production of fructose. So what we see in the Alzheimer's brain is yes, higher levels of glucose because it's not being utilized because insulin is not as effective. And then that higher level of glucose pushes the production of fructose and its precursor, which happens to be sorbitol. So it doesn't go directly from glucose to fructose. It goes from glucose to sorbitol, then fructose. And you know, one recent study demonstrated as much as a five-fold increase in the fructose level in the brains of Alzheimer's patients, and also a dramatic increase in the sorbitol level in the brains of Alzheimer's patients being brought on by the fact that their brains couldn't utilize glucose, and therefore this excess glucose is floating around becomes fructose, uric acid is elevated, then the mitochondria are threatened. So this whole bioenergetic theory of Alzheimer's that has been talked about now for 15 years, I think now has legs to stand on because now we get why the mitochondria are threatened. And it all begins, uh, hard to say where it begins, but we know that the mechanism looks like that step one may well be insulin resistance, then accumulation of glucose in the brain, then driving fructose production, uric acid production happens in the brain. And that that's a mitochondrial toxin. We don't want that. Because when the mitochondria in the brain are not functioning well, higher levels of oxidative stress, those mitochondria trigger those cells to undergo what is called apoptosis or pre-programmed cell death. And we don't want that for our very, very precious brain cells. So it puts together, I mean, these are pieces of the puzzle that 
we've been waiting for for an awful long time. Now we have the corner pieces of our jigsaw puzzle. That's big time. Well, next we'll do, of course, you know, the edges and then fill in the middle. But those were important pieces because, yeah, it's great to understand this biochemistry, but there is translational information in here for us all that, yeah, it's important to understand we don't want to be eating a lot of fructose. We get that. We got to limit our sodium consumption. I think your viewers understand why. But it's also the notion of doing our best not to become insulin resistant. Because if we do, our blood sugar glucose goes up and that will drive fructose production and uric acid production in our bodies, even though we're trying to limit our fructose consumption. So for me, it goes back to grain brain where we talked about refined carbs and consuming sugars and why that was threatening. But I admit in 2013, when I wrote that book, this information was unavailable to me. Uh, we didn't know this stuff then, we know it now. And I don't know what the future's going to hold. You know, there's still some pieces of the puzzle that we wanna figure out, but I think we definitely have the broad strokes for, and you've been talking about them on your program. Uh, you know, especially your most recent uh, podcast that you've put up, talking about, you know, why a plant-based diet, for example, is really fundamentally important because it's limiting the provision of these refined carbs. It's providing wonderful sources of fiber to nurture the gut bacteria. That relationship to uric acid may be something we'll talk about in a moment. But, you know, it really comes down to keeping that prefrontal cortex involved in decision-making, making better choices based upon your knowledge base. And your role, my role as a doctor means teacher. You know, doctor doesn't mean healer. It means teacher. And, you know, I, I would say that your training in many ways is far more valuable as it relates to what we're talking about than, you know, the typical medical, with all due respect, medical doctor training that I received and that is still happening in mainstream medical schools. So you made a really good choice in terms of your career because it paved the way for you to be in this position right now, which is so incredibly exciting because I think now the public has come around to saying, hey, we get it. There are limitations of what modern medicine, interventional medicine can do. And that modern medicine is really focused on treating the smoke, but not the fire. And that you've been emphasizing prevention and keeping us healthy for an awful long time. And some of us in the MD world have been doing that. But wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be really fantastic if there was more of an emphasis in medical school and in the practice of mainstream medicine that we realized what John Kennedy said, and that is that the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining, you know, to keep people healthy. And, uh, but we're seeing it happen. We're seeing so many people uh, becoming vociferous and really engaged in making this information available, letting people know that, yeah, you know, your doctors can help you, but the ball is really in your court if you want to stay healthy today and not really be uh, in a position where you're hoping there is some treatment for your situation. In my world as a neurologist, looking at you know, the big player, which is Alzheimer's disease, we don't have a pharmaceutical fix for that issue now affecting 6 million Americans. And yet we understand clearly that this is at its heart, a metabolic issue and that we have the tools to control metabolism. When we see, for example, Japanese literature, one study 
published in 2016 that followed 1,600 individuals for uh, 12 years. The beginning of the trial, they looked at their uric acid level. Then every two years during the trial, they did a neurocognitive test. And basically, how well is your brain functioning? And what they found at its conclusion was that those individuals who had the higher uric acid at the beginning of the trial had about an 80% increased risk for developing dementia. They had a, rather a 50% increased risk for developing Alzheimer's and a 166% increased risk of developing what's called mixed dementia or vascular dementia in correlation with having a uric acid level of seven milligrams per deciliter or greater. Now, that opens the door to the notion of, well, what's our goal in terms of our levels? You and I both grew up with, well, if your uric acid level is below seven, you're in the normal range. And I think we recognize, I know that you would indicate that we don't need normal, we need optimal. And that number seven milligrams per deciliter, which most doctors are going to say is anything below that, you're great, you're good to go, really relates to gout, doesn't it? And that figure was from where it was derived, uh, not only because above that level, people tend to have higher risk of having gouty flare-ups, but also above seven milligrams per deciliter in the blood, that's when uric acid begins to precipitate out and form the crystals. But we want to strive for a level as it relates to our metabolic health of 5.5 milligrams per deciliter or lower. That's above 5.5, we start getting into trouble as it relates to uh, cardiometabolic issues, raising blood pressure, raising blood sugar, increasing our fat production. So it's a lot lower. And so that is why people need to understand their uric acid levels. And that may be as simple as calling your doctor because it's generally included in your annual blood work and say, BTW, what was my uric acid level when I was in the office six months ago? Or maybe I'll go in and ask my doctor to check it. And he or she's going to say, well, you don't have gout. What's the big whoop? And, you know, the wheel, that's what we're talking about today. The other bit of good news is that you can go online no prescription needed, and buy a uric acid monitor and measure it at home. I have one. I have it right here, oddly enough. And here's my most recent level, 4.7. This is a device that works like a home glucose monitor. You do a tiny finger stick, you put it on a strip, you put it in the machine, and presto, you know your uric acid level. So this is, you know, it's within reach now. We can get our uric acid levels checked. And then we can modify our lifestyle immediately, bring it under control, and that's going to go a long way to balancing our metabolism. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification, 
and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Well, and I think it's so important to give patients opportunities to have some control over their lifestyle choices. I love that you wrap that in kind of talking about the interrelationship between whether it's with a continuous glucose monitor and a uric acid monitor and other, you know, having conversations with their healthcare team about the direction they want to see things go. I want optimal levels, not lab value levels. I may not have gout, but I want to make sure that my uric acid levels are within a a healthy range that I'm less likely to develop these metabolic diseases. I do want to go back to talking just a little bit about brain health, because some of the statistics in your book that I wrote down really blew my mind. In 2021, Alzheimer's dementias cost the healthcare system $355 billion per That's year. That's B with a bill. B with a billion. Billion. Yes. billion. One in 10, greater than 65 years old, has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. If you are obese between the ages of 40 and 45, it increases your risk of developing dementia by 74%. 
So these are the kinds of bits of information and statistics that I want to share certainly during our discussion because they're takeaways. Like you have opportunities to turn things around, but if you are not optimizing your metabolic health, whether it's with mitochondrial functioning, fasting, making better food choices, nutrient dense, whole foods, avoiding a lot of the processed foods. You know, the other piece that was mentioned in your book, your high uric acid is an independent risk factor for cognitive deterioration. So all of these pieces all come together. And certainly as a neurologist through your lens, you're seeing it from a very unique perspective, but one that all of us makes it, it makes it incredibly relatable. That's right. And again, we don't have a pharmaceutical fix for what you're talking about. And I wish we did. I'm not against, if there were a drug, would I have used it in my practice if it were available to me? Absolutely, I would have. Would I have given my own father who died of Alzheimer's disease that drug? Absolutely, if it were safe and effective. We don't have that. We watched what happened last year with the launch of, and, and the FDA approval of Aduhelm that uh, now, I mean, we've seen how that's played out, that even Medicare is not going to be covering it. I mean, and that's pretty uh, stringent, I think. Uh, it's a pretty big signal that, boy, that shouldn't have happened. And I think the FDA said, well, we don't have anything that really works. We've got to do something. And I kind of understand that, but you know, primum non nocere, above all, do no harm. When we see this dramatic increased risk of strokes, bleeding strokes in the brains of the Aduhelm patients, those who received it, that's not above all, do no harm. That's not attention to primum non nocere. That's doing harm. And we don't know the long-term consequences of these micro bleeds in the brains that are seen on the scans in follow-up on people receiving that drug. We'll leave it at that because our mission is to keep people from getting there in the first place. And you know, the relationship that you mentioned of metabolic issues to risk for Alzheimer's is profound. I mean, we again, we talked about it back in 2013, New England Journal of Medicine publication in September, I think, of 2013 that talked about even a blood sugar of 105 is associated with a significant increase of dementia. Did I mention that there's no treatment for that problem once it develops? So we've known about this for a long time. Being a type two diabetic may as much as increase your risk by fourfold for a situation that for which there, that I mentioned, there is no treatment. You mentioned BMI and you know, I've been asked, well, what are the most powerful tools for predicting Alzheimer's? And I've said that one of the most sophisticated tools that you can use in your office or laboratory is called a tape measure. Put the tape measure around somebody's waist and right away you know <laughs> what is their risk and are they increasing their risk. An interesting study came out last week that looked at uh, comorbid at uh, multiple morbidities. In other words, if you have more than or two or more things going on in the metabolic uh, world, like elevated blood sugar, they looked at, at quite a few things, even uh, depression, etc. If you have two or more your risk for developing Alzheimer's may go up as much as six-fold. But the important thing about the study, I think it was a French study, the takeaway for me was that it was more predictive in people who were younger. You know, normally we think, well, you know, these are going to have real relevance in older people. But it was more predictive down the line after, uh, during the 32-year follow-up. That's a long study. Of the people who had these multiple metabolic issues, when they were younger. And this is not the first time that we've seen this evidence. We've known, for example, that when you measure 
what's called an inflammatory composite index. In the old days, that was fibrinogen, von Willebrand's factor and total white blood cell count. Now we'd use other markers of inflammation like C-reactor protein, TNF-alpha, IL-6, IL-1B, whatever. But my point is they measured markers of inflammation in people in their 40s and 50s and followed them for 28 years. And now, of course, no big surprise, what they found is that people about 30 years ago who were already inflamed had a dramatic increased risk of being demented, of developing a full-blown Alzheimer's. So, you know, I've often been asked, well, when should we start the Alzheimer's prevention program? And, you know, this data would clearly suggest that it should begin uh, in our 30s and in our 40s. And so is that the default answer for me? No. When I see, as I mentioned earlier, that 10% of kids between the ages of 12 and 18 are now diagnosed with hypertension, then that's a powerful risk factor for Alzheimer's. Then we move that number to that level, to age, you know, to adolescence. Is that when we should begin the Alzheimer's prevention program? My answer, no, because now we're seeing soaring rates of obesity, overweight, and even insulin resistance and diabetes in children. So maybe that's when we should make the recommendation for the Brain Healthy Alzheimer's Prevention Program. And I say, no. I say it should begin in utero and even before conception, because we know that events going on in utero and the mode of delivery, whether it's vaginal delivery or cesarean section, play fundamental roles in charting the health destiny of that kid, that child, that there's a dramatic shift in how the immune system, for example, functions, whether a child is developed by C-section or passes through the birth canal and is anointed with specific bacteria to set up his or her microbiome. That plays a major role in regulating inflammation throughout that child's life and regulating immune function. Dramatic increased risk of autoimmune conditions like celiac, type 1 diabetes in kids born by C-section who did not receive that anointment. So, you know, it's a lot to cover, but I'm hoping that you and I right now are speaking to people who are younger, who are not uh, necessarily until today thinking they were at risk for developing Alzheimer's, you know, developing coronary artery disease, developing type 2 diabetes, developing various forms of cancer like colon, breast, or pancreas that are clearly related to some degree uh, to issues related to metabolism. So we've got to, for many reasons, you know, check in on our lifestyle biometrics, on our parameters that are informing us as to our state of metabolic health. And, you know, we're now putting uric acid right up there with measuring your blood pressure, your fasting blood glucose, your BMI, you know, it's right up there in terms of a powerful marker of metabolic dysfunction, but also as a very, very highly leverageable tool in the toolbox to regain our metabolic health. In and of itself, that's important. But, you know, when you bring up things like Alzheimer's, it's a tragic story. Uh, you quoted a very powerful statistic in terms of what we're seeing now. You know, you mentioned after age six or at age 65, the rates of Alzheimer's in America at age 85 and above, the most rapidly growing segment age-wise of our population is 50-50. That's the flip of a coin. But you can influence whether it's heads or tails based upon what we do today. 
And I think that's really important that there is hope and there are opportunities to change the direction that our life is going in. Now, I know in your most recent book, Drop Acid, which I indicated before we started recording was, I said, I've read all of your books, but this is the one that I enjoyed the most because it's so so happy to hear that. Yeah. So aligned with a lot of what we talk about on this podcast, let listeners know a little bit about your love program, LUV, that is designed to help patients, clients reduce their uric acid levels and do it in a way that is accessible and reasonable. Sure. So right now I'm thinking of Buddy Love from (laughs) The Nutty Professor, one of my favorite movies of all time. Gosh, Eddie Murphy, unbelievable. Anyway, this is spelled L-U-V and that stands, it's an acronym for lower uric values. And it really is a way to look at lifestyle choices in through the lens of uric acid and most of which of course is nutritional you know our nutritional input powerfully signals our body as to what's shaken as to what's going on and more importantly what we can expect when we suddenly load our bodies with fructose for example it mimics what our ancestors did when they were preparing for food scarcity eat a lot of fructose, turns on the uric acid, make a lot of body fat. So most of what the program deals with is nutritional, is looking at the kinds of foods we eat. But the unique thing is that you can use this program that we have articulated and look at it through the lens of paleo, keto, vegan, mostly plant-based, whatever is your desire for whatever reason, you can modify that program, maintain those concepts that you think are important for yourself. But in addition, adopt the fairly straightforward recommendations to to target uric acid and lower it. But step one is certainly knowing where you are. Uh, How aggressive do you need to be? Is your uric acid really high where not just fructose, but you really have to completely eliminate purines or reduce them dramatically and go off of alcohol completely? Who knows? You won't know until you know your uric acid level and not just what it is today, but how it plays out as you implement the various things we talk about. So the diet is somewhat or significantly plant-based. And you're hearing that from the author of Grain Brain. People thought, oh, it's all about eating meat. It's the Atkins diet all over again in Grain Brain. Never was, always plant-based to a significant degree. So that's what I'm saying here. I am not saying that for people who eat meat, you shouldn't. I eat meat, I eat fish, I eat chicken. I don't eat Uh, organ meats, which are exceedingly high in purines and can raise uric acid. The reason I've never eaten organ meats is really quite simple. I never liked them. I never liked them since age five when my mother would cook liver and onions and I ran away from home. That's how it is with me. Whatever. Is there an upside to eating liver in terms of B12, in terms of iron? You bet. I get it. Should it be considered healthful, you bet. For you know, A lot of people eat organ meats because there are upsides. But we're talking about limitation of quantities of organ meats, of shellfish like scallops and mussels, of small fish like sardines and anchovies. I eat anchovies and I eat sardines and I showed you what my uric acid level is. So it's about knowing where you are and what is the effect of these other foods that can influence a uric acid. I eat fruit, but you can be certain And I can say this direct to camera that I do not drink soda and I do not drink fruit juice. That's for sure. That said, 
again, it really depends on the individual. So that's what the diet is all about. It's about avoiding those foods that will clearly raise uric acid, adding more uh, plants to your regimen because we want to nurture the microbiome. We want a lot of bioflavonoids in the diet to target that enzyme to reduce uric acid formation. We've known that consumption of for example, cruciferous vegetables, especially good, fresh, organic cruciferous vegetables is associated with a lower uric acid level. You know, beyond all the other things that we can argue in favor of why we'd want to eat them and their sprouts, for example, broccoli sprouts, we could have the sulforaphane conversation. You've already had that. So people can watch your other episodes. But that said, again, other things to consider, we have what are called our hero ingredients. And these are uh, specific foods. We talked about eating fruit, but eating cherries is tart cherry. That's been associated with dropping uric acid for decades. Eating tart cherries or drinking tart cherry juice without added sugar has been recommended for gout sufferers for an, an awful long time. It's the reason on the cover of the book, you may not have picked up on it, but you see the O on the drop. Yeah. That's a cherry falling, meaning connoting that it's going to help your uric acid level fall. I didn't design that. I did choose the name, but, but that said, uh, so we have throughout the 40 recipes that we provide our hero ingredients, and they're always called out. Fruits and to a lesser extent, vegetables have vitamin C and vitamin C helps us with the excretion of uric acid. So, you know, it does take us to a place of looking at a couple of nutritional supplements that can be helpful. Quercetin, targets the same enzymes, anthine oxidase, that the gout drug targets, allopurinol. And that is, it reduces the activity of a fundamental enzyme for the formation of uric acid. And that is this xanthine oxidase enzyme. Quercetin does it, and it does it in a very handy way, as does another bioflavonoid called luteolin. Dosage of quercetin, 500 milligrams a day, dosage of luteolin, 100 milligrams per day. In addition, 500 milligrams of vitamin C will help with the excretion of uric acid. So that's a great place to get started. Now, again, know your uric acid level. Get a monitor or go to your doctor's office or call your doctor and say, hey, I'm heading to the lab. Can you call it in, uh, fax them a, or email them a prescription? I want to know my uric acid level. I would say to your listeners, be prepared for the question. Well, we spoke to the doctor and she or he is puzzled as to why you want to know this because you don't have gout. It's going to happen. It's going to happen an awful lot. And that's when you take a deep breath and just say, you know, I'm curious, or I've Googled two things, uric and metabolic. That's all I would ask your viewers to Google. Metabolic, not metabolism, metabolic and uric watch what comes up. You'll get pages, the first three or four pages on Google of all the references that have been published over the past 20 years, many of which by Dr. Johnson, uh, that really demonstrate that not just is uric acid elevated in our metabolic issues, but that it's playing a role in causing them. So that would be step one. And you know, if your viewers want to be bold, they might just recommend to their doctors to do exactly the same thing. Google uric and metabolic and see what comes up. So we're at the very beginning, that's for sure. I would say we're riding the crest of the wave. Not yet. We're still paddling out and waiting for that wave to come. Then we'll ride it in. Well, thank you for this discussion today. As always, I'm a huge fan and I know this information will be hugely impactful for the listeners 
please let us know how to connect with you outside of the podcast, how to get your new book, which I'm so grateful to have a copy of and will be recommending as well. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I'm available at drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. The book is called Drop Acid and the website is dropacidbook.com and it's available uh, everywhere. We're getting a lot of great feedback from people like yourself and it makes me very, very happy. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning of our time together today, uh, Cynthia, and that is the term doctor doesn't mean healer. It means teacher. And, you know, you've certainly uh, hit the ball out of the park when it comes to that. I mean, when, when I see the people that you've interviewed and your incredible compassion and skill at letting the information come out and, you know, carefully crafting the direction that it goes in, you're really fulfilling, you know, your title of doctor. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to watch. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to our next conversation. Me too. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.